Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast, recorded during the 38th Critical Care Congress in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker, MD, FCCM. Today, we will discuss an article to be published in the March 2009 issue of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine, Simulation at the Point of Care, Reduced Cost, In-Situ Training via a Mobile Cart. Joining us today is one of the authors, Jeffrey P. Burns, MD, MPH, Chief Division of Critical Care Medicine, Children's Hospital, Boston. Dr. Burns is an associate professor at Harvard Medical School. The reference for this article is Pediatric Critical Care Medicine, 2009, Volume 10, Number 2. Good afternoon, Dr. Burns. Thank you very much for joining us. Good afternoon, and thank you. Would you please tell us what you did uh, in this article, how you came up with the idea to develop a, a mobile simulation cart, and what you did with it? Uh, this paper really describes the evolution of the concept that we've had at Children's Hospital, which is that an on-site simulator will best address the needs of clinicians. Um, <clears throat> as we developed uh, our simulator, our first insight was to locate uh, the simulator on-site in the hospital. And we felt by doing that, we could capture the volume outcome relationship most readily because we could take clinicians as part of their daily work routine and run a tight scenario for them, 20, 40 minutes, and also with debriefing and allow them to participate in a simulation exercise as opposed to traveling to another center, whether it was 100 yards away or half a mile away. As we've developed that program, we came to realize that uh, an even better concept instead of having a discrete simulator center in the hospital, and in our case it's in the intensive care unit, was to actually bring simulation to the point of care. In a way it sounds so obvious that you'd ask yourself, why didn't you do this first? Because obviously what you want to do is allow clinicians in their own environment with the disciplines that normally would come together as a team the opportunity to practice an event and reflect on it together. And the most logical place to do that is actually where they work. So we developed this mobile, mobile cart to really capture that concept. So how exactly does this work? What's on the cart and how do you use it and how do you apply it in different settings? First, um, let me explain our concept of simulation. You know, there's obviously a, a number of ways to do it. Um, at Children's Hospital Boston, our belief is that a simulation exercise should start with um, some didactic session for the clinicians, followed by a tight simulation that's videotaped, and that that simulation exercise is then followed by a videotaped-based debriefing. That is, we believe that clinicians, when they can see themselves, when the adult learner can see themselves afterwards, after the event, and can reflect on it together, that it best imprints the material on the mind. So with that in mind, we developed that cart so that it would have all the necessary ingredients to meet those three stages. Um, it's got very simply an LCD so that we can project a few slides and do a, a very brief didactic session, which is generally led by the, the clinical leaders of that program. They know what the issues are confronting them. They present a tight 
um, didactic session of 10 or 15 minutes. And then there's a simulation exercise, and that's done over 20 minutes. That's videotaped. And then immediately following the simulation exercise, it's debriefed. So the cart has um, an LCD to present the didactic session. It's got a camera to record the session itself with a vital sign overlay from the mannequin, the simulated mannequin. And then that's spliced together immediately uh, for debriefing. And so then it's represented on the LCD projector. So it's a cart that's about five feet. Uh, it's about three feet wide, two feet deep. And um, it's got four shelves, and each shelf carries one of those components. Um, it's actually not difficult to put together. In fact, in the manuscript, we showed for the, you know, the engineers in the group um, exactly how to put all the component parts together. And it's r- very low cost. The cart itself is probably $8,000 worth of uh, video equipment. What kind of personnel do you need to do this? <clears throat> Fundamentally... Um, um, it begins with what's the uh, what are the elements of a successful simulation exercise, and so before describing the the personnel to actually uh, allow the infrastructure to happen, um, I think it's um, important to point out our experience and what we've learned is that if you have kind of a top down simulator program where the um, physician or nursing leadership of the simulator program come in and describe what the exercise will be and and perform and lead the exercise and then debrief it, that's not going to work. That you need to couple uh, simulator experts within your institution with local leaders, program leaders. And so in the first instance, we ask the program leaders, you know, what is it that you're looking for? And we construct a scenario together. Then um, really what you need is one or two other people uh, besides the program leader, a simulator expert, and now you need a third or a fourth individual to really probably pull this off. We can pull it off with th- those three individuals. One program clinical leader who's um, coupled with one of our simulator experts. It could be a physician or a nurse who's developed expertise and is now part of our simulator program. And then we typically have a third person who, in our case, um, our most senior uh, simulator coordinator has, to ma- has a master's in education. And so she helps design the scenario, but she's become facile with using the video equipment. It's not it's really not too difficult in this day and age to use video equipment and splice it together. A lot of the software is doing this. And so that third person is actually kind of utilizing the camera, making sure the camera is focusing appropriately, and then immediately turning around the videotape for debriefing. So you make use of personnel you already have um, in a sort of standard simulator um, setting, and you don't need to hire new personnel to do a p- program like this. Correct. Um, we have, you know, as I noted, um, we have hired um, clinicians who are part of the um, simulator program on a part-time basis, um, and in particular, we have uh, three or four uh, members of the program who function as the uh, simulator suite coordinators, and so these are people who help run the exercises. In the first instance, as I said, it's um, a person whose skill set is that they've got a master's in education. In the second instance, uh, it's now a biomedical engineer who's helping to do research uh, on the mannequins and things like that. But fundamentally, uh, my very first simulator coordinator was a pre-med student from um, Harvard College who worked with me over the summer, and she quickly could operate all of the equipment, including the mannequin. And you just need someone who's motivated and you know, intelligent. 
That sounds pretty interesting. So clearly this is useful in an intensive care unit setting. What other kinds of settings can you uh, use a mobile simulator cart? When we started simulation at uh, Children's Hospital Boston, our first thought was team training. And as you noted, we logically turned towards the intensive care units. And that's where it, it started. But as we quickly looked around in any large academic setting or any large hospital, there are multiple teams that have to form quickly in the event of a crisis. And so the, the second program that came to us was the trauma program down in the ED, seven floors away. But, of course, it's logical uh, that they would seek this. And so as the pro trauma program asked uh, for our support, we were faced with the issue, do we bring the trauma program up seven floors into the simulator suite in the intensive care unit, or do we go to them? And it was at that point that we really said, you know, why are we taking them out of their element? Um, we've got a room that is designed to simulate the real environment, but we're kind of turning the concept on, our head, on its head if we're not going to their environment. And that's really what motivated the development of this kind of in situ point of care program. We go down to the trauma suite and with everyone in the room in the, com in the proportion that they would be in the room, um, that is the nursing staff, the physician staff, the surgeons all have to be there in the proportion that they would be in a real crisis. And that's what really motivated the development of this. It was the trauma program and the need to go to the emergency department, the trauma room where they actually perform. And you've also applied this in the operating room, the cardiac catheterization lab, some very creative areas. And it was interesting to see the program evolve in ways that, uh, quite frankly, I never dreamed. And um, it was simply a matter of, um, because the program was successful in one environment, and I think the key was we, we just held to certain principles about how we were going to do simulation, that clinicians quickly around the hospital saw that it was a valuable tool. And so they sought us out. And so the next program that sought us out, and kind of simultaneously the cardiac ICU was developing their on-site uh, program. And then uh, the operating room came to us and said, will you assist us? And uh, now we started to have to balance, okay, we can bring simulation to the point of care, but when in the day, you know, can we do this? Because obviously one of the limitations is in any busy clinical environment, you have to find, you know, the place within that environment where you can actually do a simulation and not disrupt patient care. So you had to be rather creative uh, in practical aspects of scheduling as well as personnel and, and um, things specific to the environment, for example, working around all the equipment in the cath lab um, to develop appropriate simulator projects. Well, it was interesting, uh, Margaret, because actually the clinicians helped us. And so, for instance, when we went to the operating room, um, they were very eager for us to help them set up a program in crisis resource management. And they volunteered, especially in the PACU. They said, you know what, we'll start the day early. We'll start you know, with a simulated exercise at 6.45 or 6.30 if you're willing to do it. And we said, if you're willing to you know, come in 30 minutes, we're willing to do it. Um, they were so motivated to get the program that they were willing to either tack it on to the beginning of their day or the end of their day so as not to disrupt patient flow. Um, and so in the PACU, that's in fact what we did. In the cath lab, it was, as you noted, even more of a challenge um, because, um, first of all, there's only so many rooms. And if they're occupied, then we, we had to suffer you know, with that. And we noted in the manuscript that that was the site where we had the most planned exercises canceled because the program is simply too busy clinically. 
Nevertheless, we were able to construct a number of scenarios within the cath lab, utilizing, in fact, all of the equipment. And in fact, in one case, we actually reproduced um, a uh, balloon dilation attempt of a pulmonary artery, and there is a, a rupture of the pulmonary artery. It was a real case. And what we did was we took the actual data that occurred in that case, the sinais that were going on at that case, the vital signs, and fed them back into the mannequin. And then we brought in the cath lab team. Now, some of these people had actually lived the event, but most hadn't lived the event. And this is really the power of simulation. Up to this point in medicine, you know, we hear about a difficult case. We talk about it at morbidity, mortality. We may write about it as a case report. But on the, it's only the clinicians who live the case who really have that event imprinted on their mind. Now we can take a case that has many salient features and reconstruct that event and then put another team through it. They're now living what another team did. Now, in the actual case, they were able to stent the, disrupt, the disrupted pulmonary artery, and the child survived, but they had to move quickly. It was really several people moving in concert fast, several teams working together, the cardiologist performing the procedure, the cardiac anesthesia team, and a surgical team had to come in with ECMO standby. When we did the simulation of that exercise and put yet another team through it, we discovered that there were some systems issues related to the ready availability of cannula and sheaths and things like that that were needed at this point in crisis, and that there were other events related to how the teams were functioning that we were able to work out and redesign our emergency procedures because we could relive the event. Boy, this is really fascinating. The advantages of being able to take the simulator to the environment are obvious. Are there any disadvantages to this approach? I think the biggest disadvantage is if the clinical environment, um, if, if there's some uh, emergency or unexpected um, clinical event and it, and it forces you to truncate or, in fact, cancel the procedure, um, being postponed is actually not a problem because you haven't attempted it and you'll, you'll try it again. Uh, the worst part is when you're aware that uh, the clinical environment is getting busy out there and you guys have to cut this short. And what you really don't want to do in simulation is you don't want to cut it short. If you've taken clinicians as part of their daily routine and you've put them through a scenario where they know they're being videotaped, it has to be a a scenario that's fair, that's challenging. It can't be seen as one that's so unusual or peculiar that you're tricking me. Regardless, uh, Margaret, of what environment you're in, whether you're at the point of care, you've actually taken a mobile cart into the operating room, or we're in the, um, the fixed simulation lab up in the ICU, I think the lessons that we've learned in our program is that there are a few essential elements that you just have to adhere to. And if you don't, then simulation is simply a tool that will fail. Just like a good teacher um, knows how to succeed, not because of the kind of blackboard they have, but they know how to teach. And really it's the same thing. Early on, some of the mistakes that we made were we didn't have clinicians in the room in the proportion that they would be in. So for instance, we ran crisis resource management courses, mock codes, but there were 10 physicians in the room and two nurses. And the nurses rightfully came to me and said, you know, that's not the proportion that we're there. That's not going to work. And so we immediately realized, no, crisis resource management is about a team, and the team has to reflect what they actually do in real time. And we also learned that um, 
you have to, we have to create an environment where the clinicians can suspend disbelief, and they can do that if they know that everyone in the room is playing their own role. Um, we can't have a respiratory therapist playing a neurosurgeon. A respiratory therapist can only be a respiratory therapist, and the neurosurgeon can only be a neurosurgeon. And we adhere to that throughout the program. Everyone plays their own role and nothing else. There aren't actors in the simulator suite. The scenarios have to be developed very carefully. As I noted earlier, we have uh, a woman who's got a master's in education, although I think this could be done without that. Uh, but if the scenario is one where you don't give the clinicians enough information, or if the scenario is built around such a rare event that it's what in medicine we would call a zebra, it's so rare, it's so unusual, that it has really no practical implication for the team other than that was a rare event. Then they feel that you're really trying to trick them as opposed to trying to help them be better. And so we've been very careful to take cases from our actual quality improvement and morbidity and mortality review. That's where we get our cases. And we say, what do we want every clinician in this program to relive? And that's what the program is built around. It's built around the closed loop of taking an event that occurred and making sure that we can filter everyone in that program through that event or the salient features of many events and then allow them to debrief. And this is the other key part. Um, if it's seen as um, kind of a top-down, this is what the leaders want you to know, and just, you know, just do the exercise, then, um, then the clinicians don't really want to participate in that kind of environment. Um, debriefing is a real, it's both an art and a skill, and we make sure that uh, the clinical leader and the simulator leader have both gone through debriefing sessions. Um, you know, sometimes they've gone through a really difficult simulation. It gets really tense in the room, and people need it, an opportunity to decompress and express what they were feeling and the insights that they have. And so the last part of it is, um, as I said, that we make sure that the, those leading the debriefing have been trained formally in how to debrief. And, and this is an insight that we got from Clay Christensen, who's at the Harvard Business School. He told us to videotape our debriefing. And I remember thinking, why? And he said, because the insights that you have aren't all from you as the chief and lessons that you're gleaning from your QI program and your morbidity and mortality review. He said, those are some of the lessons. He said, but the clinicians have insights that you don't have. And when you run them through the scenario, and afterwards, they're able to reflect on it. They're going to identify points in the care that are vulnerable that they can see that you can't. And if you videotape that, then you'll be able to take those insights from the frontline clinicians and match them against what are some of the insights from the so-called program leaders and together combine those insights into revamping your procedures and your policies. He said, in fact, if you do that, you're actually doing what high-quality business organizations do. You said that's actually how they do it. They combine insights from leaders with those on the front lines, and that's really the Toyota production model. That's great, Jeff. Do you have any final comments you'd like to make? Um, I don't. Um, I uh, thank you for the opportunity. It's, it's a, a great um, advancement by the society to have these uh, opportunities. It's a real pleasure talking with you today. We've been talking today with Dr. Jeffrey Burns, Chief Division of Critical Care Medicine at Children's Hospital in Boston, about the article, Simulation at the Point of Care, Reduced Cost, Insight to Training via a Mobile Cart, published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine, 2009, Volume 10, Number 2. Thank you very much.
Help advance your hospital's rapid response program by attending SCCM's Rapid Response System Training. To be held July 13, 2009 in San Francisco, California, USA during SCCM's Critical Care Academy. This concentrated one-day course will include a brief overview of the rationale, evidence, and structure of rapid response systems, the anatomy of a rapid response team call, and tips for effective communications and crisis management. Participants will break into small work groups to circulate through interactive modules that troubleshoot calls on airway, breathing, circulation, neurology, and implementation barriers and solutions. Register early as space is limited for this course. Visit www.sccm.org for more information. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is Margaret Parker, MD, FCCM, guest podcast editor for pediatrics. Dr. Parker is director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook University in Stony Brook, New York. She also is a professor of pediatrics at Stony Brook University Medical Center. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.